0: Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Well, we are in the second week of a two-part prelude, if you will, a precursor to our next series, which is on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to a better way of life as a follower of Jesus. And so last week and this week, Kevin talked about what it looks like for us as, as individuals to follow Jesus. What does it look like when the culture informs what it means to be a Christian Or how does it look when the Bible informs us as Christians? And so today, what I want us to focus on is what it looks like to follow Jesus as a community all together. Um, And the best way to really see that is the way Paul outlines it in the book of Philippians. In fact, the words, if then, which is the name of this little series, comes from Philippians 2. And we're actually going to read a lot of the first and second chapter together today because it really puts on display what it looks like as followers together together going towards um, being more like Jesus. The funny thing is that um, the Philippians is chock full of all these little verses that we tend to give to people as individuals or we hold on to them ourselves as a way to encourage ourselves in our walk with Jesus. So typically like Philippians 1.6, he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Or Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I think many of us maybe got one or two of those at a graduation or, or during a hard time. But what I want to offer you today is this invitation to see that these verses are so good for strengthening our own hearts, but they were written to a whole community. And when we hand them off to a person or or write them on our bathroom wall, we forget that while they're good for us, they're also burdens and encouragements meant to bear with one another. The good work was a collective good work that, that Paul knew would be faithful to be completed. The death would be for the sake of others. And all the things that Paul was bearing so that all the, all the things that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, those are all the things that Paul was bearing so that others could hear and know the love of Jesus. So this letter, it was written from Paul from a, a prison to a collection of house churches in a Roman colony in Philippi. And uh, <clears throat> what I wanna offer you today is that the the letter wasn't written to one individual person about their their one life or their one walk with god it was written to a group of people who were it says striving side by side with a singular vision to contend for people's trust in jesus so like every other true thing that we read in the biblical story it's meant to form us It's meant to form us more and more into the image of Christ, but for the sake of others. And so I wonder how in our society that's so focused on image and appearance, if we're cool with the idea of becoming more like Christ and bearing his image, but we've lost sight of the purpose of that and and it being for the sake of others. So I grew up in a time when becoming a Christian, there was a real emphasis on a personal a relationship with him. So I was taught to ask Jesus into my heart, even though I already had an awareness that God was with me and I believed in who Jesus was, it was still important that I asked him into my heart to have a personal relationship with him. And when I was in high school, we were trained to share our faith, and we were kind of taught that if someone, someone responds to us with like, oh, I'm not interested in religion or I'm not really a religious person, that, that a good answer would be like, it's not a religion, it's a personal relationship with, with Jesus. So, um, you know, a lot of that is true. And while it felt really transactional, the person of focus was me instead of the person of Christ. So this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians It's really warm in its tone. It's full of thanksgiving and joy. He's rejoicing with Jesus and who the Philippians are and in his relationship with them, despite his circumstances of being in chains and despite their circumstances of being persecuted. Both the writer and the recipients are experiencing some form of suffering, and yet there's joy displayed throughout the letter. So I wanna set it up for you a little bit. If you can access your Bibles to Philippians, You might want to follow along, and I think there's going to be verses down at the bottom too, but As I said, the Philippians were a collection of house churches in a Roman colony. There was quite a bit of affluence in their their area and in their culture. There was a lot of industry where they were. And the people who lived there, they dressed like Romans and they spoke Latin and they really prided themselves on their Roman citizenship. So they were known, the Roman citizens were known for their patriotic nationalism. So when Paul was walking around announcing that Jesus is the king of the world, he was met with quite a bit of resistance and persecution. And then in the midst of that, the the people that ended up following him after he left, they too were met with resistance and eventually persecution. But they still go on to build this amazing, vibrant, loving, caring community together. So later on in Philippians, which we're not going to go that far into it, but in chapter three, there's this one verse that he talks to them about being citizens of heaven, awaiting a savior from there, who is Jesus Christ. And he's telling them not to put all their security and their hope in their Roman citizenship, but in who they are in Jesus, in belonging to Jesus and putting their hope and their whole selves in Jesus, seeing themselves as a lived expression of Jesus's very life. So here's a little bit about the kind of people that made up the Philippian church. You might be familiar with a story from Acts 16 about a woman named Lydia. She was from a town in Philippi called Thyatira. She was a businesswoman, and she was most likely single because there's no indication of a man in the picture with her. So Acts 16, 13 to 15 tells her story and we're going to read it from the message because it really captures it beautifully. On the Sabbath, we left the city. This is Paul talking. On the Sabbath, we left the city and went down along the river where we had heard there was to be a prayer meeting. We took our place with the women who had gathered there and talked with them. One woman, Lydia, was from Thyatira and a dealer in expensive textiles. Known to be a God-fearing woman, as she listened with intensity to what was being said, the master gave her a trusting heart and she believed after she was baptized along with everyone in her household. She said in a surge of hospitality, if you're confident that I'm in this with you and believe in the master truly, come home with me and be my guests. We hesitated, but she wouldn't take no for an answer. So Lydia, she becomes a follower, follower of the way and her first response is to bring her whole family along. When we read about salvation in the scriptures, we see that yes, It is important to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and that's all there, but the focus never just rests and ends with the individual. It's much more communal than that. Whole families and groups of people come to faith together. And we also see Lydia's hospitality in that when she invites them to come back and stay with her, her immediate response is to serve them and to care for her her fellow brothers in Christ. What we see here, and throughout the New Testament, when Jesus or anyone else invites someone to follow him, they're actually not just inviting them into personal relationship with him, but they're inviting them, in, they're inviting people into a movement, directly into community. So here's what else we see through Lydia: she claims her place in the community through the practice of hospitality. She realizes that she, a single woman, is an integral part of a faith family in which all members belong and no one else is marginalized. Further, the Holy Spirit may have convinced Paul that it would be good for him to receive her invitation. And he the Holy Spirit may have prompted him to accept it because um, not only is welcoming others an important part of hospitality, but being open and receiving invitations is important. So, I want to encourage us as a community to not only be inviting, but be open and available to relationship and be responsive to to invitations to join into community. Lydia shows us the type of people that make up the Philippian church, but it's not just her. There's also a slave girl that completely disrupted her community when she um, encountered the disciples, there was a prison warden who came to faith along with his household when they witnessed this wild moment of Paul and Silas worshiping in prison and their chains literally falling off and the gates of the prison unlocking and, and releasing them. So what they've experienced and what they've seen has given them this confidence that they belong, that they're welcoming and they're generous as a result of it, From what uh, as a result of what they've seen. So he says, In Philippians 1, 3, when he opens up the letter, we can already hear his love and affection for a people that he knows really well and that he's been with and shared some really meaningful experiences with. So listen to what he says. He says in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because you're sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. The affection in this letter is more pronounced than any correction or instruction in the letter. It's a letter that's marked by joy. In fact, the words joy and rejoice are mentioned 16 times from a guy who's in prison to a group of people who are being persecuted for their allegiance to Christ. And so it beautifully displays this hope that we can receive through mutual encouragement. The power of coming together for one purpose and one strength and courage that's developed and maintained when we share our lives together. In verse six, he goes on to express his confidence that the life transforming work that God started among them would continue as they live in Jesus in a place where God has them. He says in verse seven, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart for all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long to be with all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise to God. Paul goes on to assure them that being in prison isn't great, but it isn't all that bad either. God's used his circumstances to help spread the gospel. The guards know he's there because of his allegiance to Christ. And other brothers and sisters in the faith, are they're, they're seeing him withstand all of that. And they're encouraged to stand firm and strong in their faith and to talk about their faith boldly. He talks about how some people are using the fact that he's in, j- in jail as an opportunity to boost their own platforms of ministry, if you will. And in verse 18, he says, look, it's fine. As long as Jesus is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and that I rejoice. All he cares about is that Jesus is proclaimed, that people hear and they know the love of Christ. Then Paul says he's pretty sure that through their prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus, he's going to be delivered from jail. But if not, it's okay because his life and his future are, not, are defined only by Jesus's life and love for him. So if he dies, it's fine because he gets to go be with Jesus. But if he lives, it works out better for everyone else because he can stay and work alongside them. This is Paul's way of, suff, of, of entering into, as, into, into participating into the story of God. Remember, if you, if you listened last week, Kevin said that Christianity, following Jesus, is a participation sport. And this is his way of participating to suffer, for the, to love others well for the sake of Jesus. And he encourages his friends towards the same because they too are suffering for their faith and their allegiance to Jesus. So he says, only live your manner in a life worthy of the gospel so that whenever I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you're standing firm in one spirit striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing for he has graciously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you're having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So when we get to our phrase in chapter two, we see our if then If all this is true, if we're meant to participate in Jesus's story, if we're living our lives as followers of Jesus, if we encounter resistance because of the choices we've made because of our faith, because of what we've proclaimed because of our faith, if we endure hardships, loss, illness, suffering of any kind, and if we are finding our encouragement in Jesus and comfort and consolation from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I love the way the message says this part really plainly. I think it's verse one and two. He says, if if you've gotten anything out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being a community of the spirit means anything to you. If you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor, agree with each other, love each other, be spirited, deep spirited friends. Now he's not saying we have to agree with every little thing about our lives, but we can agree in prayer. We can agree We can agree on the one thing that matters and that's Jesus and his way of being in the world. And then he launches into what looks like for them, what it looks like for them together using this beautiful, poetic, summarized version of the gospel story, what it looks like for them to actually do this and what's required of them. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, this is verse um, chapter two, verse three through 11, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, Somebody saying amen in their living room. I can just feel it now. (laughs) Paul, he's encouraging them not just to have the same mind and unity as one another, but to have the same mind and unity as Jesus. Jesus, who was in the form of God and equal to God, but he didn't exploit that or take advantage of that position that he had. In fact, he released every right and privilege he had in that and he became human not just a human but in the form of a slave which let's not disregard that word it's an ugly word in fact some of your some of your translations of the bible don't even want to use the word they just they want to use the word servant because slave has become such an ugly word but that's that's what it says he assumed the position of a slave, a person who gave and lived his life solely in dedication for the good and benefit of others. He gave his life for others, but the difference is he was willing to do it. He chose to do it out of the father's love for his people. And his life was marked by his humility. Becoming the suffering servant to all, he actually allowed himself to be humiliated in his obedience, even to the point of death. But God, through his power and his ways not being our ways, makes the low way the highway. That shameful way of dying on a cross was reversed through Jesus's resurrection so that all of creation could know that he is God. All of this richly describes Paul's conviction that the Philippians And all of those who followed like you and I and us and Journey Church and the community down the street and the one across town and the ones all over the world would live a life of imitating Jesus. And the reason it can't be done alone is that none of us individually could ever have what it takes to bear the image of Jesus on our own. He calls us the body of Christ for that reason. Every part needs the other parts to be fully whole and functioning and thriving. So recently I've had a couple of different opportunities to share some meals with pastors in the Middle Tennessee area from different denominations. And this is something that that kind of unity and that kind of connection with, with, with people from other denominations is something that was instilled in me early on in ministry. And it's, it comes from this conviction that we're not meant to compete with one another, like what Paul was saying about those people who who were taking advantage of him being in prison and and using it to advance their own platforms. Like We're not to do that with each other. We're supposed to be for each other because if we're all preaching about Jesus and we're all bringing people to him and and wanting people to know Jesus' love, then we should be for each other. So we don't always, this group of people, we don't probably all agree on everything, but we leave room for each other. And we focus on the things we do agree on. We focus on what is important and what we are unified on. And that's Jesus and his love for people. And this particular group of people, they want to focus, we want to focus on fulfilling the ways of Jesus that the prophet Micah talked about when he talked about doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. We talk a lot about the different ways it looks like to become a beloved community, and we look for ways and opportunities to become that. Now that term, beloved community, was first coined by a theologian named Josiah Royce, but it was made famous and known by Martin Luther King Jr. That dream that Martin Luther King had, the dream that he's so famous for, and, and the vision that fueled all his work and comforted him in his suffering was this vision of a beloved community where all people get to experience dignity and abundant life and see themselves and others as beloved children of God. And it's a vision, right? It's a, a vision as a preferred future. So it means bringing an end to poverty. It means ending hunger and homelessness and being an inclusive, spirit of community that replaces racism and discrimination and bigotry and prejudice. And in a wider world, the beloved community means that disputes are resolved through peaceful conflict resolution and ultimately a commitment to to nonviolence. It means that love and trust will triumph over fear and hatred. So tomorrow is Dr. King's birthday, and it's, it's a holiday for, for most of us. And if you're on social media, you're probably going to see a lot of really great quotes from him. And some of them will be from a letter. They'll, they'll be extracted from this letter that Dr. King actually wrote when he was in prison to a collection of churches, which is what he kind of had in common with Paul as far as that goes. But Dr. King's letter is a little less rejoicing. It's much more sobering, as it details his disappointment with and the divisions within the church, and um, particularly around issues of racism and segregation. And it's called the Letter from the Birmingham Jail. And if you haven't read the whole thing in its entirety, it's a it's a meaty and important read, especially. If you're familiar with some of these sayings of Martin Luther King, it's really good to read it in its whole context, and you can find it pretty much anywhere on Google. But You know, he commends in this letter, he commends some of the churches for encouraging their people to comply with the new desegregation laws that they had. But what he's disappointed in is that no one would actually stand up and say loudly that integration is morally and biblically right because he says the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, he was disappointed that no one would stand up and say, desegregation is the right thing because the Negro is our brother. That's his language. And he goes on to say, I'm going to read an excerpt from this letter because tomorrow is his birthday and it's a day that we're to commemorate as a, as a nation. And, and he has some good and timely things to say in it. So he goes on to say, I've watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I've heard so many ministers say those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I've watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. There was a time, and this is echoes, you can hear echoes of Philippians in here. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought to an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest Things are different now, he says. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. Again, I thought it would be timely to read an excerpt from this because not only does it echo what Paul was saying to the Philippian church in that one section, but it speaks to the power of what happens when the people of God, the collection of those who say they follow Jesus, the church, that there's power when we're united and do things we are fearful of in a posture of being unafraid. And there's detrimental power in abandoning the oneness, And that imitation of Jesus, that like-mindedness of Jesus, and the imitation of him together. So let me ask you this. Would you say that the church right now, the global church, the church in America, the church wherever, would you say that it's currently known for its humility? Would you say that Christians are known for their love and joy to unbelievers? Do followers of Jesus have a reputation of putting their ambitions, putting our ambitions and our interests aside for the sake of others? I get why some people don't want to have anything to do with this thing anymore. If you're still listening to this, you probably do somewhere deep inside of you. And I get, and hearing me ask those questions, it might be painful. um, And why, like, why do we keep talking about this? But I want us journey the community that we're all in to be one that's marked by humility and love and joy. And that doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the pain, we don't sit with each other in our, in our, um, in our brokenness, but that's what they were doing. They were all sitting in brokenness and still marked by joy. And one thing that they were also marked by was serving others and caring for each other. So what do we do? (laughs) What do we do? Here at Journey, you you might have noticed that we don't really have a lot of programs. We don't have a thousand ways you can serve throughout the week or things that you need to sign up for. We kind of harp on the same thing every time, and that's, that's intentional. We focus on two main priorities as a church together. We eat dinner around tables together, and then we gather together on Sunday around the table of communion. And so we serve each other on Sundays so that we can gather together around the table of communion. So if you haven't already, go to your pantry and grab whatever elements you might have, because we're, we're going to do it together today. And I'm realizing I've got no, I've got no uh, elements with me, so I'll lead you in it and then go do it myself. But we're going to gather together around this communion table because the table of communion is a visible, tangible, digestible reminder that Jesus humbled himself for the sake of others. Not just for you and I, but for all of us together and those who come into relationship with him through our lives and our work. Through those that we come into relationship with, your work and what you're doing out there. that, That love and that humility of Jesus is meant to overflow from you into your daily life. You're not here and part of this church to fulfill any kind of vision from one of us pastors or leaders here. We're here together to share in the spirit of Jesus and the sufferings of Jesus so that we can live into the joy of Jesus regardless of what life throws at us. We do things like the table and we serve each other so that we can become actual friends. So we can encourage one another and we can be generous with one another because We firmly believe that generosity begets generosity, and hospitality begets hospitality, and forgiveness begets forgiveness. So today, as you take a few moments to reflect and receive communion with whatever elements you have and whoever's at home with you, remember how Christ lived, remember how Jesus loved and how he died and how he rose again, And this invitation that we have to live into all of that together, being right here, right now. And tomorrow, if weather's permitting and you would like to join me, I'm going to be in Franklin at 11 o'clock at First Missionary Baptist Church where several organizations are going to come together and, and hear about where do we go from here in light of Dr. King's dream and there'll be a march at 1115 to downtown Franklin commemorating and celebrating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. Wherever you find yourself today, again, I hope you're safe, I hope you're warm, I hope you have enough food. If you don't, reach out to us. If you have prayer requests, please text them to us or email them to journey at journeytn.com. We, it is our joy and it is our privilege and our honor to share life with you.